When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Warning, this podcast contains spoilers for Peacemaker on HBO Max, as well as the DCEU in general. Some comics, most notably uh, the Peacemaker limited series, original limited series from DC in the 80s, and oddly enough, Avengers Age of Ultron and X-Men First Class, and probably a little bit more. You have been warned. If you haven't watched those things, read those things, you may get spoiled. Jason and welcome to X-Ray Vision, the Crooked Podcast, where for 25 episodes, we have dove in deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture in today's episode on Previously On. Some casting news, Paul Dano's full immersion into the meat suit of the Riddler, uh, some Thor Love and Thunder Lego news, and some other stuff about Marvel. In the airlock, we will be talking about HBO Max's Peacemaker, the finale of which aired last week. In the hive mind, we are joined by Peacemaker star Chuck Woody Wooji, who plays Mern on Peacemaker and is a wonderful human being, and we had a great conversation. On Nerd Out, a listener tells us why we should care about the legend of Vox Machina on Amazon. And in the end game, who is our favorite villain turned hero? And joining me today to talk about everything is the brilliant, the talented, the hilarious, the only one who could be here today for the 25th episode of X-Ray Vision. It is a great Rosie night. Rosie, how are you today? It's me. I'm happy to be here. Happy 25th episode. We did it. We did it. We made it. It's a quarter century of X-ray vision. Wow. Spanning the generations. It happened. We've done it, folks. Uh, Okay, let's get to the news. First up, some casting news for Craven. The Sony Pictures Spider-Man universe property. We already know that Aaron Taylor Johnson... The very handsome Aaron Taylor Johnson from Kick-Ass and other fame is the titular Craven, the Russian hunting enthusiast who so annoys Spider-Man throughout his uh, various comics adventures. He will be joined by Fred Heckinger, who uh, you might remember from White Lotus. If you watch White Lotus, he is the younger brother who has to sleep in the closet because <laughs> his sister and her sister's friend uh, find him annoying. He is coming on to play a role that we don't know what the role is yet, but uh, there's a lot of scuttlebutt out there that it could be a chameleon who is, of course, Craven's brother. Any thoughts about this, Rosie? It is very out there. I think the 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 rumors being that it's chameleon and specifically the half brother of Craven, which is like a real yeah. like nineties thing. I think that's very interesting to me. I love Aaron Taylor Johnson. I think he was wasted. Same. Um, in the MCU, so I'm excited to see him get another chance here. I dream of a 
world where we see the real Craven costume, like you know the buzz, and I, I hope that we get some fun things like that. I also think it's really interesting. I mean, this is great casting. Like Fred is really great, so go for it. But I think it's really interesting that the rumor around Russell Crowe, who was also reportedly cast, mm-hmm. is that he's going to be Craven's dad. So I'm interested <laughs> in this weird, like, family interesting. legacy kind of villain movie. I hope we get the Nick Spencer version of Craven, which is kind of like leans into the humorous side of Craven a little bit more rather than like the 80s and 90s you know, really, really super, super dark Craven. I will say that I agree with you, Aaron Taylor Johnson. I have always been a big fan going back to Kick-Ass. I think that I agree with you. He is wasted as uh, as Quicksilver, the Marvel Universe. But I, I just want to say this. His death is 100% Hawkeye's fault. One Unquestionably. Million, million, hundred, billion, trillion percent. Hawkeye gave up. If you go back and watch I know if you go back and watch that scene, Hawkeye grabs the kid and then the gun starts shooting towards him and then Hawkeye could he could dive out of the way. He could dive left or he could dive right. Instead he's like, "You know what? I'm gassed out. I'm just going to turn my back and not watch us both get shot." And that necessitated Quicksilver having to come in and save the day. And of course, Quicksilver dies. And again, I blame Hawkeye for this 100%. 100%. Also, couldn't he have shot a fast arrow? Like, we know that he's quick. Also, I'm just going to say it out. This is like, to me, this death, especially because this is cool casting, even if it didn't necessarily go the way it is. Also, spoilers for Age of Ultron, lol. Um, (laughs) 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 But like... This death to me is up there with unacceptable deaths in a comic book movie. This and Darwin in first class. Oh, yes. Darwin can uh, never Darwin, die. That's I, the I, point. I don't ever want to talk about that again. Literally. Because that movie, that movie is really good, actually, except for killing Darwin in the fashion in, and again, spoiler, yeah. <laughs> killing Darwin in the fashion in which he dies. Yeah. It's, I don't even want to, the only black mutant in the fucking movie. It's terrible. Oh, wait. He would not die like that. And then also don't th- forget he just would not die about Zoe Kravitz's Angel Salvador. Sorry, Zoe, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes. also One another the character black also written the, out uh, yeah. of the movie. But yeah, that Darwin can't die. He literally evolves as the point of the mutation. And Quicksilver cannot get shot to death because he is Quicksilver. He can move he faster could, than a bullet. He could, he could outrun the bullets, folks. He can outrun them. Okay. <laughs> But yeah, he will be, anyway. this is good casting. And if you saw Tenor and you managed to get through the first yeah. half and watch the second half where it kind of changes, he is, when I saw him in that movie where he has a brilliant but small role, that's when I realized why they cast him in mm-hmm. this. Because if you think about him in Kick-Ass or Quicksilver, it doesn't necessarily make sense. But in Tenet, you see yeah. him and you're like, oh, that's Craven. Next up, uh, Marvel's Horrorverse is beginning to take shape. Some casting news for the upcoming Blade project. Aaron Pierre from Krypton, uh, from Old, from Barry Jenkins' upcoming Lion King prequel, has been cast in an unknown role in Marvel's Blade, starring Mahershala Ali, of course, as Blade, and also Delroy Lindo. Uh, According to Deadline, the role is said to be, quote, one of the more highly coveted parts in Hollywood since Bassam Tariq was tapped as director last fall. Rosie, who do you think this means? Who does this mean? This is just such a good, I have to say, right, so often when we get these castings, we're like, 
oh, of course we don't know who it is. They don't want to really, but like reveal it. But this is so well done that they snuck this little line where they're like, it's one of the most. So we know, realistically, this is my read. It's not somebody who we know from Blade because in the Blade comics, there are not that many famous characters. Right. The, aside, right. And, and because Aaron Pierre is a guy and he's older, a lot of the rumors about the Blade movie for a long time were that it was going to be about Blade's daughter, which was based on a comic that never came out. That doesn't seem to be the case. I think it has to be a character who's going to be in multiple MCU things. Which is why they say sought after. People want to be in the MCU. You want the consistency of work, the um, the money, the the prestige, the platform. So I think, this is my guess, because Aaron Pierre has okay. very powerful eyebrows. I okay. think he's going to be Dracula. This is amazing. I mean, it's a great pick. Of course, probably the most classic Blade villain for those of you uh, who have who are up on Blade's comics canon, that would definitely mean he would be around for a while. Uh, I love it. That's a good one, man. Jeez. I was thinking something, I don't know, something much more low-level like Vampire X or something mm. like that. But I guess... That could yeah, be cool, though. I wonder if Vampire X is too close to Blade. Mm. Like, if that's too much like... Uh, so Vampire X is an ultimate Marvel vampire character extremely well-trained, like daredevil-level fighting a martial arts ability and can really go toe-to-toe with Blade uh, in that regard. But that's not... I do like... I like Dracula better. I wonder who... I, I like your pick better. I think Dracula is a great pick. I think it's really fun and I think, like, it, it's exciting because it's like, is the reason that this casting was announced now because he's going to be in Moon Knight before we see him yeah. in Blade? Is he... Could it potentially be that he's going to be in that Halloween special that we all are pretty sure is a werewolf by night kind of secret backdoor? Something that we talked about in pre-pro is, like, could it be that they were potentially casting a character from one of the Blade movies who they're going to, like, recast? Which right. I do also Deacon, think is Deacon Frost. Deacon Frost. Deacon Frost would be the, the 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 definite pick in that regard. I do wonder, because this really runs up against Kevin Feige's stated philosophy of never really uh, rebooting mm-hmm. something. So I do wonder how... Deacon Frost, of course, is dead uh, per the Blade movies. So I do wonder... But he's a vampire also, so it wouldn't be that hard to be like, he came back. (laughs) The ultimate get out of Blade. Yeah. Whatever the case, I'm really excited to see uh, who he's playing. And I can't wait for the Blade movie. I'm really, really. I mean, this is like a whole nother paradigm shift for the MCU. A real, real opening of, like, we've seen Spy Marvel, right? We've Mm -hmm. seen Cosmic Marvel. Uh, We've seen uh, Superhero Marvel. We've seen Street-Level Marvel on Netflix and other places. And this will be our first real foray, other than Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, which will give us uh, hints of it. Real Blade will be our real foray into horror Marvel. Very, very exciting. Batman news. Batman, of course. The Batman, uh, directed by Matt Reeves, is scheduled to come out on March 4th. Get your tickets now if you can. Paul Dano, who is playing the Riddler, (laughs) was quoted uh, recently saying that he got so deep into the Riddler that he just basically couldn't get those Zs. Quote, there were some nights around that I probably didn't sleep as well as I would have wanted to just because it was a little hard to come down from this character. It takes a lot of energy to get there. And so you almost have to sustain it once you're there because going up and down is kind of hard. Uh, he continues uh, another quote about being wrapped in uh, plastic wrap for, for a scene in the movie. I almost couldn't sleep because I was scared of what was happening to my head. It was like compressed from the sweat and the heat of lack of oxygen. It was a crazy feeling. 
All of which is to say there will be a lot more uh, X-ray vision uh, coverage of the Batman as we near the Batman, which is very exciting. But uh, Paul Dano, please take care of yourself. Any thoughts on this, Rosie? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is like the Batman movie tradition, right? Like you have to, if you're playing the villain, you have to tell a story. And it's really funny because like I'm very intrigued by Matt Reeves' take. I I think that this grounded idea of a a Zodiac-inspired Riddler is really interesting and this leads into that, but it always reminds me of this tweet that I saw, right? By this, when they first <laughs> announced the, the Paul Dano casting, there was a tweet by this guy, uh, Casey Lawrence. He said, he ain't even in costume and look like someone that tell hella riddles for no reason. And I just think <laughs> all the time about that, where I'm like, you cast a guy who legitimately just looks like he would tell riddles and you covered his face. Like, yeah. <laughs> but no, I think it, it sounds good and scary and I'm into it. I'm into it as well. I will just add that during the production and filming of 1989's the, uh, Batman movie, mm-hmm. Jack Nicholson had it written into his contract that he wouldn't have to be on set during days that the Lakers were playing. So <laughs> <laughs> there's Powerful. two different approaches, uh, two different approaches acting, and you can get however you get there as long as you arrive is absolutely valid. And we wish Paul Dano the best and hope he's getting some sleep now. Uh, finally, our continuing coverage of Lego's potentially, potentially spoiling movies, spoiler, spoiler, spoiler alert, potentially, uh, some uh, Lego news about Thor Love and Thunder, a Lego set titled The Goat Boat. Incredible. Has been has been spotted. It is a Viking boat pulled by uh, two goats and includes uh, mini figurines of Thor, Mighty Thor, King Valkyrie, Korg, and Gore. This is, uh, and we've get here a confirmation that Mighty Thor, uh, played by Jane Foster and King Valkyrie titles, uh, will be will be featured in this film. We get one of our first looks at Gore and the Necrosword. The Necrosword, of course, being forged from the same symbiote material as the original symbiote that would become Venom, would become Carnage, would become a whole suite of symbiote creatures. Now, as Chris. Our producer, Chris, super producer, Chris, raised in pre-pro. Lego has been known to throw a few head fakes and pump mm-hmm. fakes into the mix to try and throw people off. They, they've they released sets in the past that don't correspond to anything from the movies. They are occasionally using uh, the, the verbiage inspired by to denote that it's not directly from the movie. But any thoughts on this? And listen, we've been waiting for the goats. Yeah. We need the goats to be in a Thor movie. Shouts to my tooth gnasher people out there yeah we have always wanted the goats they're needed i think this is a definitively 99 percent likely to be inspired by slash in the movie movie relevant i mean one the goat boat that sounds like taika waititi made it up like <laughs> no know, way right? <laughs> no way taika did not make that up that's hilarious also it was very telling so this got announced on like a i think like an abc good morning show mm-hmm. and uh and the way that they posed it they hid Gore and Korg, but it reflected in the bottom of the table. And I think that ended up being why they released it properly. So I think that to me says, you know, we know Gore is in the movie. That's, yep. you know, and and I think that it's really cool that we're getting to see the Necro Sword. I like the way that these toy reveals and Lego stuff kind of bring you back to that kid aspect of comics. So yeah, like, like seeing the too. Necro Sword in like Lego is is really fun. It's kind of like, you know, thinking of action figures when you're a kid and that being the first space that you see these things. So I think it looks really fun. I love Taika's Thor. 
I love same. We we both have talked so much about you know the Mighty Thor run, how much we love Jane Foster Thor, Natalie Portman. That's brilliant casting. I love King Valkyrie. I love Tessa Thompson. Like I'm just ready for this weird, delightful movie. Let me ask you a question. Coming out of Love and Thunder, does Jane continue as Thor for another movie? Do you see a world in which it splits? Right, you have Thor maybe in his own stuff, having his own adventures, just like in the comics, no longer uh, the actual god Thor, but he has Stormbreaker and he's going off and having his own adventures, um, finding out who he is. Um, Not the first time that he's been separated from his hammer in comics canon, but certainly one of the most emotionally evocative. And through that run, we get a lot of time with Jane as Thor. There are a lot of reveals in that run about really kind of like quietly revolutionary canon updating reveals about the nature of Mjolnir and how it works, where Thor gets their powers from. Do you think we'll see Natalie Portman in multiple movies as Thor? I think so. I mean, if you look at what they're building, we something that I love to talk about and we talk about on here is the way that they seed in things in the comics to bring into the movies or the way that they retroactively look back. So if we look, we have Sam Wilson as Captain America. Mm -hmm. Now, when Sam Wilson was Captain America in the comics, when it first really started, Jane Foster was Thor. She was the mighty Thor and they were in an Avengers team together. And that team also included some young heroes. I think, I don't know if, I don't know if the Avengers as the title, we know it will be what we see, but I do feel like we'll see mighty Thor in more than one thing. We're already essentially in the right space for it because Thor as he is now, even though this is not how I would consider him because I love Thor, <laughs> but he is essentially the unworthy Thor. You know, he is right. Thor who can't. Right, he is. And and that's where you find Jane. Also, Marvel wants and needs more female heroes. You know, you could even have like an A-Force style team, like a female I think we're heading there, right? Yeah. I think we head there at some point. We get They teased it in Endgame, mm-hmm. right? You get where you had the team up moment. Uh, you know, she's not alone. She has help, excuse me, is the line. Yeah. But I think, we, I think we're heading there, right? Because we yeah. already have She-Hulk now. Exactly. And I think we'll, we'll get there. And I think it's like they're, they're, they're reimagining what it looks like. So like, I think that if we got it, it will be like She-Hulk, you know, but it will probably be Monica Rambo and yeah. Miss Marvel and Jane Foster Thor. So you have that more it's diverse idea of like who is a female hero in the MCU. And also the cool thing is we have the TV shows now. Maybe yeah. Mighty Thor Jane Foster will be in a romantic relationship with Sam Wilson and we'll see that in a secondary series of that show. Or we'll see it in the potential Captain America 4 movie because that's something from the comics. I think there's... So much fun stuff, especially because we know Thor is going to be in a kind of Asgardians of the Galaxy cosmic hero situation, which means Midgard, a.k.a. Earth, needs a Thor, needs a hero. A new protector. Yes, needs a new hero. So we've already got the celestial Mm -hmm. sticking out of the Pacific Ocean. For those of you not up on uh, semi-recent Marvel Comics canon, the Avengers move their headquarters into a celestial, which clearly the celestial from the Eternals will be that. Yes. When do we see that? Because I feel like that's going to be the end of of one of these big arcs is going to be like the last scene in some movie mm-hmm. is going to be Mighty Thor Jane Foster. Yeah. Monica Rambeau. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure who, uh, uh, Sam Wilson, Captain yeah. America, all gathering in the Celestial for like the first official meeting of like the new Avengers. Yeah. 
Do you think that happens like officially? And do you th- when do you think we see it? I think it's going to happen if it happens. And it seems realistic because why else would they have that super sick like celestial right. coming out of the ocean? It looks incredible. They want, us to, they want us to think about that. Yeah. I think realistically that is going to be something that probably happens around the time when whatever the judgment the, uh, if you haven't seen The Eternals, The Eternals ends uh, with Cersei being judged by Arishem, a celestial who's basically like, you saved these humans. What was the point? Are they worth it? Right. You're going to be judged. You know, Eternals, divisive movie. But depending on which way the MCU decides to go, there's lots of different ways. It could be Eternal-centric, but it could also be a Galactus-esque introduction. It could be something to do with the Silver Surfer. It could be a different aspect of cosmic heroics. And we know that the Eternals are out there. Thena, you know, just met up with Star Fox, all these different people. So I think at some point, basically, whether or not the Eternals are involved, it will be a response to another celestial or cosmic threat. And they'll be like, well, guess what? There's a celestial on this earth that was turned to stone by someone more powerful than a celestial. So that's probably a safe place to just hang out. (laughs) One more question before we move on to uh, the airlock and our discussion of, of Peacemaker. Okay, we've done Civil War, right? Yeah. We're going to do House of M in some form or fashion, Definitely. right? It's coming. We haven't seen Siege, though Asgard is on Earth, uh-huh. right? So maybe that can happen. But, we'll, but what gets us to Siege is the fallout from Civil War and other superhero calamities is the dark reign when uh, Norman Osborn and a coterie of similarly minded super criminals and various other B and C and D and E list super criminals uh, rise to take control of the, you know, world security apparatus because mm-hmm. basically world governments are like, you know what? The superheroes are fucking up all the time. Norman Osborn made a good pitch. Let's let him run it. It wasn't an event, so to speak. It was kind of just like an, an all around paradigm shift all the way through yeah. the Marvel universe of every book. But, Man, there was some good stuff to come out of that. I think we're on the way. And we've got the Thunderbolts coming now, right? I wonder, do we go to a place where there is a complete paradigm shift where, you know, we've already kind of saw it with Thunderbolt Ross and various people saying we need to legislate against enhanced persons. Does it eventually flip where Thunderbolt Ross and others are like, we have to actually crack Mm -hmm. down. Let's give control to couldn't be Norman Osborn unless they got him as a variant from some other place, but some other person like that. And let's really let's do dark rain. Do you think we see it? I think we're going to get a version of it. I think we might already be building. If you think about another like key thing from dark rain is is Lady Loki, who, you know, we just got. And also as well, I think we're kind of already on our way to some kind of Thunderbolts, Dark Reign-esque situation. For all we know, a Norman Osborn, as he exists either, you know, we have a multiverse now, would be easy. People love Willem Dafoe, but like, I love Willem Dafoe. (laughs) But like, it would be really easy to have a puppet master pulling the strings of this US agent, you know, kind of new version of whatever the Dark Avengers is. We know Abomination's being trained by... Uh, right. the, the new sorcerer, Supreme Wong. So I think that we're very, very close. And I also think this links back to one of our big conversation points. How do you introduce the X-Men when people with powers are not right. being oppressed? If you set up a dark reign situation where people with powers who are, in quotes, good, are being legislated against and it becomes this kind of 1% evil corporation, then you immediately have a situation where mutants... And heroes would have to come together to fight against this kind of bigger threat. And I think that that in some way, shape or form is going to be 
really relevant, especially because a lot of times when I write about this stuff or we're researching stuff, you go back to Dark Reign a lot. That era. It was great. It's just like, oh, where did this character come from? Oh, it was Dark Reign. Where, yeah. where did this thing come from? Oh, oh, it's Dark Reign. And we know that the next big official, which is so great, actually, because I have a lot of thoughts about how this links into Peacemaker, but like the next big thing that event comic adaptation that we know is happening, we've got Secret Invasion, you know, as well as Armor right. Wars, which I'm stoked for because I love Rhodey, but like Secret Invasion, that is confirmed. And again, that kind of, brings in this idea of the distrust of superheroes who is really a superhero right in the comics in the comics secret invasion led directly into dark rain because the fallout from that was people were just like wait so you're telling me that for an unknown amount of time like several high-ranking government officials as well as superheroes were actually aliens mm-hmm. like working against justice, peace, and security. Like, what the, f- what the yeah. hell is this? Like, what are we going to do about this? So, and that caused a significant erosion of trust. And then, of course, you had to have uh, Norman Osborn and a bunch of uh, dark Illuminati <laughs> figures get together and Casual. make a plan uh, ca- very, very casually. But it feels like we're going to go there. I do wonder if, so we're doing the multiverse right now. This is the phase we're in. I wonder if once we're through Quantumania, mm-hmm. right, if they will close the door, so to speak, on this particular chapter of multiverse stuff, like whether it's incursion or whatever device they use to kind of like close the door on that, if we then move to a more grounded, okay, let's let the bad guys run mm-hmm. it because when we let the good guys run it, basically all we get are destroyed cities, alien invasions, and uh, yeah. et cetera. And I think it leads into something. I think that specific conversation is like so much of what we talk about And what makes this stuff special to us is that it's this two-way conversation between the people who make these stories and the people who read them. And that question of like the Civil War question, the legislation question, like who gave these people the the right to go and blow things up and who, who, who chose them to be the protectors? We're not talking about... Peter Parker, the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, stop like rescuing a cat and stopping people from getting mugged. And even then, like that's its whole own socio-political conversation. But like we're talking about a teenager with world-ending nuclear weapons. We're right. talking about yeah. uh, Scarlet Witch, you know, accidentally blowing up this building in in Lagos. Like this is the stuff that people get excited a, a I, to talk about. Yeah. A trillionaire's a trillionaire inventors like uh you know various inventions getting out yep. into the wild. Yeah, this is all gonna have an effect at some point. And we've already got damage control. We know mm-hmm, Roxxon mm-hmm. exists in the in the universe. It feels like at some point we're gonna get that reaction. Yeah. I'm excited to see that. Okay, this has been really fun. I can't wait to uh, talk more about this stuff. But first, let's go to the airlock and talk about Peacemaker. Imagine you just got home from work, dinner is ready, wine is chilled, and your man has offered you 15 minutes of heaven in the form of a foot massage. And then he says, your spray tanning session is now complete. What just happened? You found your escape at Palm Beach Tan. Break from the chaos at a Palm Beach Tan near you and leave rejuvenated. Take time for yourself at Palm Beach Tan and take that feeling with you wherever you go. Get up to $25 off your first month featuring Australian gold. Perfect man, not included. People think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh. Like creator Kate. This Glade Orchid Neroli candle is so fresh. It's like fresh as watching a sunrise in Santorini. Yeah, I'm going to need more of those. Explore the new Glade Fresh collection today. 
We're stepping out of the airlock and into Evergreen, Washington, home of HBO Max's series. Do you really, really want to taste it? Peacemaker. Uh, created by James Gunn, eight episodes, which just uh, wrapped up last week. John Cena as Christopher Smith. Uh, Peacemaker Daniel Brooks as Leota Adebayo. Freddie Stroma, the wonderful Freddie Stroma slash Dickon Tarly from Game of Thrones, uh, plays Vigilante. Chuck Woody Awuji as Clemson Mern. Jennifer Holland as Amelia Harcourt. Steve Agee, the wonderful Steve Agee as Johnny Economos. And Robert Patrick as August. Augie Smith, the white dragon leader of the uh, white supremacist faction of uh, the DC Universe. Folks, it was a fun season one. Excited for season two. Let's do the lightning style recap episode seven stop dragging my heart around are you ready rosie i'm ready let's do it okay to the sounds of motley Crue's 1985 power ballad hit home sweet home we flash back to peacemaker's childhood and we see a really really troubling moment in which chris and his older brother keith you know they are hanging out listening to heavy metal music uh keith is showing chris how to do the devil horns and then they are called outside by their father augie their father would like his sons to bare knuckle brawl in a not even like in an arena or a squared up, just like literally in a pit in a hole in the ground. Chris punches his brother Keith. Keith suffers a serious brain injury and dies. And Augie immediately blames Chris for Keith's death. I've been wondering, you know, how they were going to bring in peacemakers mental illness you know it's funny because we've been talking about like marvel's uh, foray into mm -hmm. uh, a mental illness storyline with moon knight here is dc getting there first with uh with a character who is right out on front street like very very ill in his uh, debut limited series from the mid 80s and here is kind of like the origin story of chris's really extreme trauma right here we're watching yeah. it happen dc getting in here first i think is really key to talk about with peacemaker because as we talk more this is like basically their take on something we're going to see from marvel and it's like yes. it's very interesting to see this kind of exploration and look at PTSD in the context of what is otherwise quite an outrageous, like funny, crass show. We will delve into a conversation about what that exactly is as we get to the end of this recap, when they really start seeding in the stuff that seems directly pulled from the comics that references Peacemaker's state of mind. We go to the present day. Vigilante and Peacemaker are on the run from the cops. Of course, cops have just held a press conference in which they have called for the capture, dead or alive, of Peacemaker. Meanwhile, Judo Master has escaped, which is like barely mentioned. He's just like out of there. There's too much going on. We can't look for Judo Master right now. Judo Master has escaped. He is back on the street. Peacemaker uh, plans to take Vigilante with him to go find the cow, the source of the butterfly's food on Earth, and... Big spoiler, kill it. That's going to be the, you know, listen. That's the plan. To a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Got to go kill the cow. So they head off uh, with John Economos. Meanwhile, Adebayo is racked by guilt for her role in framing Peacemaker. Harcourt realizing that Adebayo planted uh, the diary in Peacemaker's trailer at Amanda Waller's behest, confronts Adebayo for betraying her teammates, adds is like, listen, I'm not cut out 
for this mercenary life. I'm just like a normal person, you know, like I was running a dog shelter. She doesn't say this now, but she's like, that was her life. She, you know, lost her job. And then her mother, Amanda Waller came to her and was like, well, you need money. So why don't you do this? Mern shows up. He knows that Adebayo is Waller's daughter. Harcourt is still amazed at this. And he says, listen, we need to get out of here because the police and the police chief, they're all butterflies. They have access to their human body's memories. Therefore, they know where all our locations are. Flash over to Judah Master. What's he doing? He's hanging outside the Easy Peasy Mart where he quickly bushwhacks two assholes who are making fun of him and he steals their car. Little note. For the uh, for the denizens of any superhero laden reality, if you see someone in costume hanging out somewhere, don't just make fun of them like you live in a world in which multiple costumed people beat like people up all the time. So just like don't fuck around. Why are you doing that? Uh, Harcourt calls Chris. Uh, but Peacemaker doesn't want to answer because he is too busy singing uh-uh. hair metal while driving with John and the vigilante to kill the cow. Meanwhile, Augie. Chris's father is in his white dragon power suit. He is with his Aryan Empire gang. They are homing in on Chris's location because every one of Peacemaker's helmets has a GPS locator in it. They waylay our hero's delivery van and a big fight ensues. Vigilante unloads his submachine gun into the white dragon. And then as the coup de grace to finally take out Augie, he throws a grenade Midway between himself and the white dragon, unfortunately, they're standing about nine feet apart. And so Vigilante, who is in the less the less sturdy suit, takes the absolute worst of the explosion. Chris and John look on in horror. They flee the scene. Peacemaker realizes uh, at that moment that his dad can track him through the helmet. And so uh, John Economos has the brilliant idea to tie the helmet to a raccoon and they escape. Vigilante, meanwhile, has managed to steal a car from one of the Aryan uh, Empire, but he passes out like after driving a quarter of a mile because, again, his body has been shredded by shrapnel from the grenade that he threw (laughs) four feet away from himself. The butterflies close in, in in their cop, you know, meat suits, close in on Harcourt, Mern, and Adebayo. Mern is killed by Goff. After revealing his true nature as a butterfly and his name is Ichno Block, is revealed to his fellow alien insects, Goff crushes him to death. Harcourt and Adebayo are like hiding like right there. <laughs> They're like <laughs> hiding in inverted commas. <laughs> They're like hiding literally like around the corner. Nobody sees them. That's fine. Uh, they go and comfort Ichno Block slash Mern in his final moments. And just as Harcourt is beginning to grapple, to struggle with the challenge that they now face without their leader, Mern, Judo Master shows up to grapple and struggle with them both. He knocks out Adebayo. A brutal brawl ensues, which finally ends when Adebayo, like, stun guns Judo Master for, like, two straight minutes right in the side. His little body can barely take all that electricity. (laughs) He passes out. Peacemaker and John find Vigilante passed out in the car. They they get in as Eagly pecks at uh, John Economos' asshole, and they escape. Peacemaker realizes uh, that Vigilante has a bag full of helmets that he stole from his dad's headquarters, meaning that 100% his dad knows exactly where they are mm-hmm. because there's a GPS in, inside of all of them. They pull over. Peacemaker goes off to throw this bag into a field. Why do you need to throw it into a field? Just leave it at the side of the road and drive away. He's a bad decision maker. He's not the smartest 
guy, which is part of the fun with Christmas slash the Peacemaker. The Aryans find Peacemaker as he's trying to get rid of this bag of helmets. They chase him back to the car, proceed to beat his ass as Eagly is flying around, trying Eagly's very best to dissuade these people from killing his owner. Meanwhile, John crawls like a half mile away. I don't know why the sound from this fight wouldn't reach the part of the forest where Vigilante is peeing against a tree with his butt fully exposed. Here's the thing about, <laughs> about, about Peacemaker that I love, right? You get so much really fun character lore oh. that is now part of the history. Like Vigilante yeah. is a real DC character, absolute psychopath. But nowhere in, in this uh, character's like lore history was it known that he could not urinate if any kind of fabric was touching his buttocks. But here <laughs> we, we learn that about him. Meanwhile, White Dragon has smacked Eagly to the concrete. Peacemaker charges at, at his father, and White Dragon unleashes like a unbelievable racist, homophobic, nationalistic, and just generally like mean screed upon his son. And it's only the quick thinking of Vigilante and John Economos that managed to save Peacemaker's life. Chris then shoots his father in the head after Augie is like, What are you going to do? Shoot me in the head? <laughs> he asked for it. He asked for it, and Chris weeps. Now, in the comics, Spoiler, Peacemaker's dad is already dead, has yes. also was shot in the head, but by his own hand, commits suicide. And Peacemaker's dad is like a flat out, like an actual Nazi, like yeah. real, real life. Old school Nazi. Member drug. of the Nazi party in the Waffen SS, the whole thing. And molded his son to, to follow in his footsteps for various reasons that I'm not going to spoil because maybe they'll delve into it, that programming was like disrupted and Peacemaker's role and and character arc like as a hero was unbeknownst to him steered by shadowy forces who were just like trying to keep his like fragile semi-destroyed psyche together. So here we see Chris weep after shooting his father, but then not too soon after in various other episodes, we see that Augie continues to appear to Chris. Yes. I think we're going to get that. This, it clearly we're going to delve into this kind of broken psyche of Chris Smith, the peacemaker through this. And I wonder, Rosie, do you think we're going to learn that peacemakers own history with Keith, the things that he remembers maybe aren't quite the things that he remembers. Do you think that we're going to go there? I wouldn't be surprised because the one thing that I think really stands out, and this could just be James Gunn is a, he's a very eccentric storyteller. There can be big tone shifts, but I do think something that's very telling about this show, which kind of it swerves between absolutely grounded and brutal and like the opening this episode with Chris and his brother is like a great example of that. But there's these flashes of of something more supernatural, more superheroic, right? But the yeah. one thing that really stands out to me that doesn't really fit into the world and feels purposeful is the fact that Augie is like this inventor genius who has right. a secret lair. Even Where does that come from? Task right. Force X don't have a secret lair. Right. Like, this guy has a secret lair that's huge. He makes all these different kind of helmets. We get some really funny riffs on all the different kind of helmets. But that feels like it's linked to something bigger. Or something Agreed. shady. Also, like, Agreed. he's an idiot. He's like an ignorant yeah. racist. Like, I don't believe that he's a, a tech genius in this right. space that James Gunn has created for him. So I think that you could be really right 
about there being some kind of manipulation that harks a little bit back more to the comics, especially with the ghost stuff, because the notion of Peacemaker being haunted by his father is like very much comics based, even if it's not always as literal as they put it in to the show as we kind of go forward. Okay. We continue. Harcourt and Ads recover after their scrap with Judah Master. And now they we get this really wonderful moment where they the two bond and finally share like uh, things from their life with each other. Ads talks about her previous job managing a dog shelter, talks about her relationship such that it is with her mother, Amanda Waller, the extremely ruthless, loveless Amanda Waller, who apparently wanted her daughter to transition directly from helping animals <laughs> in need to like active counterintelligence yeah. and assassination work which is like okay ads uh also did not tell this is a notable did not mm-hmm. tell her mother that Mern was a butterfly which is important harcourt and ads catch up with uh peacemaker vigilante and john at the local vet's office where uh peacemaker is of course trying to uh, heal eagerly harcourt talks uh, vigilante out of like executing the veterinary staff he really (laughs) really wants to do it but harcourt manages to to really in a hilarious fashion talk him out of it but I just want to say in, in a perfect character moment like you were talking about, when she convinces him, Vidge is then like, okay, well, let's not duct tape them because then it will hurt when they pull it off. <laughs> right. <laughs> he's, like either, perfect... he's, he's like the world's purest sociopath and I love him. Absolutely. He is my favorite part of this show. Freddie Stromer is an icon. Give him every Absolutely award. love him. He is so hilarious. The moment when he's like, okay, but now you're telling them like stuff from my life. <laughs> like... <laughs> Is he is so funny? Okay, so uh, Ads walks back into the vet surgical medical rooms, sees Peacemaker praying over Eagley's corpse in a what is can only be described as a very touching scene. If you're an animal lover, as I am, Eagley then rises and he and Peacemaker embrace. And we flash back to that earlier scene uh, from earlier in the season when Peacemaker is telling Adebayo about how he hugged Eagley at one point and Adebayo just dismissing it, being like, you're crazy, I don't believe you. Adebayo is emotional at this, kind of freaking out, calls Kia, her wife, and uh, suddenly is dedicated to this group of individuals. We see the team now forming. Mm -hmm. She realizes she has to help kill this cow. So the plan is to hit the cow where it is, in the cavern under the barn, before the butterflies have a chance to assemble their teleportation equipment and get the cow out to a new location. The team has come together. We get to a hilarious moment. We're vigilante. Where they ask, Harcourt asks them all if they're in, if they're part of this team that is going to take down the cow. And they're all like, you know, Peace Worker's like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And then vigilante is like, hashtag me too. <laughs> And it's, it's such a honestly, good so joke. And Freddie Stromer is like the only person who can. He's he's so good because like he is a sociopath. Midge is a sociopath. But like throughout the show, he has in the episode before this, he has this incredible moment where he goes into the prison to yes. try and to try and like basically kill Peacemaker's dad. And he does this <laughs> great speech uh, where he asks all these neo-Nazis what their favorite contributions like black people have made to culture art and he does this brilliant speech and like throughout this they make him like very likable so in the end like when he's the one making that joke you're like he's just a pure kid who thinks he's shouting out me too like he is that weird like this is hilarious and freddie stromer is an icon 
I love him. So the team heads off and we get a nice uh, character full circle moment as Harcourt smiles at the heavy metal music that is being blasted around her. And we're on to the finale, episode eight. It's Cow or Never. In the RV on the way to kill the cow, Ads is once again trying to apologize uh, to Peacemaker for uh, for setting him up uh, to be assassinated and take the fall for all the various crimes that had happened uh, throughout this, this series. Peacemaker responds with a series of fart sounds, which is like various fart sounds, mm-hmm. lifting the leg, et cetera, like ex- each each kind of like building on the other. until so finally, Vigilante uh, joins in and Chris is like, dude, we're off it now. It's, it's old now. Like you, you got into it too late. Chris ultimately does not accept the apology. He is still... I think, you know, rightfully hurt that Adebayo tried to frame him for a crime. (laughs) I'm like, honestly, I'm like, he deserved it. I remember the Suicide Squad. I am a Suicide Squad fan. That's true. I saw this guy stab Rick Flagg, who was allegedly his hero and his teammate. He did do that. So I think that in a bubble, he is right. Adebayo, like, what were you thinking? Uh, Yeah. But in the context of the thing, I feel like he should have have a little bit more understanding and empathy for someone who might betray a team member, especially when they apologize. Great, great, great point. And, you know, as Amanda Waller's daughter, you know that it must take a lot for her to Mm -hmm. apologize. And when she's saying it, she really means it. The team arrives on the outskirts of the farm. Adebayo calls her mom, which is something uh, that she hinted at that she was going to do in the previous episode. Her mom, Amanda Waller, and is like, hey, can we get an assist from the Justice League? Can you you hook us up here? Get the Justice League out here. We're we're facing like a a full scale alien invasion and and a cow of unknown size. We need some help. Unfortunately, Amanda Waller says, uh, there's no time for the Justice League heavy hitters to arrive on the scene. Yes, they have two team members that can travel at superhuman speed, one who can run at Mach 11 and who can travel through time because he can run so fast, but they won't make it there in time. Sorry, they're just not going to make it there in time. And they're on the clock, of course, because the butterflies are, as we speak, working to teleport the cow out of the barn. Adebayo conveys a message from her mom to Harcourt that Harcourt is now in charge. The butterflies are getting ready to teleport the cow out of here. In moments, the cow will be in a different location. Harcourt and Peacemaker scout the barn. Meanwhile, Peacemaker is explaining all his various helmets, all the cool things that the helmets that his dad made him, his white supremacist father made him, and all the things they can do. Underwater breathing, maybe not super uh, useful right now, but it's cool. Sonic Boom will be useful very soon. Human Torpedo will be useful very soon. And more. Now, right after this, in a very funny scene, Adebayo accidentally activates the anti-gravity helmet, which goes flying off into the air. And now our heroes need a new way to get the Sonic Boom helmet to the barn. Somehow Green Arrow's name comes up and the Peacemaker is like, as he has done to in hilarious fashion all throughout the series, uh, drops some probably not correct like information slash rumors about the various super powered individuals and super costumed individuals in the DC universe. And he lets everybody know that Green Arrow uh, goes to brony conventions and wears a costume with a four inch wide butthole, which is not as vigilante asks used for breathing. And it's probably not true. But John Economist does say it. He says it's the one thing that he does think is true. <laughs> so who knows? <laughs> Stephen Amell had some thoughts about this uh, online this week. So who knows? Never mind, because they can use Eagly to take the helmet over. So uh, Peacemaker tells Eagly what to do. Eagly overcomes uh, its dislike of Harcourt, uh, picks up the helmet, flies it over to the barn. It's going to be amazing. Then flies over the woods and drops the helmet somewhere 
over the trees. <laughs> okay, so what are we going to do? The t- teleportation equipment is almost ready to go. We got we to gotta speed this up, folks. Our heroes pair up to look for the helmet. Vig and Economos, Harcourt and Adebayo, Peacemaker and his dad. Wait, what? His dad? Sorry, this is a false alarm. Augie is only there as a very, very realistic hallucination, a manifestation of Chris's extreme trauma. So don't worry, everything is fine and chill. Peacemaker is just having extremely realistic hallucinations of his white supremacist father. This definitely will not play into uh, season two of The Peacemaker. Don't worry about it. Meanwhile... Harcourt has just uh, wandered up and has witnessed Peacemaker shooting a poison dart into a tree while screaming at his dad. Uh, Are we troubled by this? We don't have time to be troubled by this because Harcourt finds the helmet uh, buried under some leaves. Chris takes out a butterfly sheriff, steals his uniform. We flash forward a few hours. They convince Economos to put on the uh, butterfly sheriff uniform, despite the fact that it was very recently covered in shit. And uh, Economos goes in, carrying the helmet in a toolbox. On the way into the barn, Officer Fitzgibbon, of course, who is one of the butterflies, stops him, uh, questions him briefly, but then allows Economos to continue in. At which point John gets a look at the cow and it is fucking horrifying, Rosie. It's it, huge. It's I not mean, a it's cow. massive. It's it's, it's a not a cow. giant, monstrous kind of caterpillar-esque thing. But the name cow, that's very specific, and I will get into why as we go forward. Yes, I, I, I'm very excited to very excited to hear about this. John flips out about this. I mean, he has just seen mm-hmm. a like a animal alien that is the size of like a whole section of an airport. That has like, I don't know, eight or ten nipples that are continuously being milked for its uh, delicious amber fluid. John is like, I'm out of here. He flips out. He's leaving. And on his way out, Fitzgibbon stops him again. And in his response to Fitzgibbon's questions about why his beard looks so weird, John, in a wonderful character, full circle moment, very emotionally admits that, yes, as Peacemaker has inferred all season he does dye his beard and he does so because he just feels out of place. He feels out of place in the world. He feels maybe not good enough. He feels he's not young enough. He feels that he's not in shape enough and he wants to feel like a different person and he's a pathetic person. He feels like he's a pathetic person and that's why he dyes his beard and the entire team hears this exchange over the radio. Mm-hmm. Fitzgibbon is like, fine, I buy this. Uh, you can go away. But then another of the butterflies finds the helmet that John left uh, in the barn and they chase John and all hell breaks loose. And here we go. We're going to get the big fight. Adebayo triggers the helmet, which starts to cave the barn in on the cow. The big fight is now fully engaged. Peacemaker, Harcourt and Vigilante run to the barn. They're they're shooting, punching, hacking their way through the various butterflies Chris uh, sees Goff duck into a stairway heading underground. He chases after her. Meanwhile, Vigilante and Harcourt are shot like multiple times out in the battle in front of the barn. They fall to the ground with serious wounds. But before a butterfly can fully take over Harcourt's body, it's climbing into her mouth. Adebayo showing that maybe her mom, Amanda Waller, knew what she was doing. Maybe, maybe Adebayo was wasting her talents as the lowly, and it's a noble calling, so I don't mean to say lowly, but but as a mere manager of a dog shelter, because Adebayo goes full John Wick on these butterflies, like 
double guns, John Woo style, kicking, punching, shooting, fighting her way to her friend Harcourt, who she saves, pulling the butterfly out of her mouth moments before it can burrow all the way in. Adebayo, now wearing the human torpedo helmet, follows the stairway down. As this is happening, Peacemaker has managed to extract himself from the rubble, is immediately attacked by Goff. Adebayo appears, is thinking, I'm going to save my friend, activate humor torpedo. She goes cannonballing into a wall and is knocked out. KO'd. KO'd. Goff is then like, you know what? We need a third hand here. And also, I need to do an evil villain monologue because that's what happens in these stories. So here's the deal, okay? It's me and Walker. And we need a third set of hands to throw that lever over there so we can teleport this cow out of here. And here's the pitch, okay? Actually, your planet is on the road to ruin. It's on the road to destruction. Same thing happened on our planet, okay? You politicians are are not serving the people. The people are divided. Environmental collapse, military incursions, all of these things are happening just in the exact same way that happened on our planet. So let us invade. It's actually a good thing because we are going to use our wisdom and our experience to help the human race not fall into the trap that we fell into. What do you think? And Peacemaker is like, activate human torpedo, sending Adebayo flying into the cow's belly, killing it in absolutely fucking disgusting fashion. He then kills Walker and kills Goff. Victory. We have saved the day. Our team is walking away from the ruins of the barn, which hide below it. The massive, disgusting corpse of the cow. Chris is carrying the wounded Harcourt in his arms. And just as they are walking off, who should arrive but the Justice League? Minus Batman and Cyborg, Mm -hmm. who, again, somehow, despite the fact that they have two speedsters in the group, I'm calling Superman a speedster. He can go at superhuman speeds. Yeah, they race. They have arrived too late somehow. Peacemaker gives some, hey, I know you fucked a fish. Humor to Aquaman, who, believe me, has heard it many, 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 many times before. This is old hat for Aquaman who's been dealing with this. Later at the hospital, Chris and Adebayo make up. Peacemaker is a little bit worried that per the butterfly pitch from Goff that maybe he's just doomed the world to the fate of the butterfly planet. He's unsure about it. Adebayo gets to address the media. She clears Peacemaker's name and reveals that he and Vigilante were working under a program that was greenlit by Task Force X, kind of a Task Force X affiliated program, it, thus revealing publicly the existence of Task Force X run out of the Bell Reef prison uh, by her mother, Amanda Waller, and which is a program that uses superpowered criminals to send on suicide missions to basically save the world over and over again. Yeah, you know them as Suicide Squad. You know them as Suicide Squad. Waller watches from Belle Reeve and she is pissed. We get a series of pops now as we head out of the of the show. Chris is allowed to see Harcourt, who's recovering from surgery. Nice warm moment there. Adobaya returns to her wife, to Kia. Wonderful moment there. John Economos limps back to Belle Reeve and Task Force X, his previous job. I'm glad that he still has a job. Somehow. Somehow still has a job bringing with him fond memories and a wonderful picture from the friends he made along the way in the fight against the butterflies. At the ruins of the barn, Judo Master shows up eating flaming hot Cheetos and he weeps. Uh, Peacemaker and Vigilante are back, in fact, having fun in the forest. They're just like blowing up an Oldsmobile with an artillery shell for fun. Harcourt, we get to watch her learning to walk again. And then later at Peacemaker's RV, a butterfly shows up. 
Chris feeds it some wonderful amber juice that apparently he had been saving up. Then his dad appears on the patio mm-hmm. and and talks to him in a very realistic uh, way, even though we know that this is a hallucination. And we are off into uh, season two of The Peacemaker whenever that happens. Let's talk about it. Rosie, I think as we talked about previously, it seems like we are heading directly into the real comics lore of mm-hmm. The Peacemaker as this person who is constantly bedeviled by the voice and image of his father, yep. who as he is doing, you know, in the middle of fights in the comics – Peacemaker will hear the voice of his father being like, you need to be more brutal. You're not you're too weak. Why are you saving lives? You should be exterminating lives. Clearly, we're going to be going to this place. We talked about the parallels with Marvel's Moon Knight. How do you feel about this part of the Peacemaker story now? Clearly going to be part of season two and and Chris Smith's story going forward. I think it's very interesting because the key conflict that this finale sets up is something that could have been completely gone in a total different direction because it's really mm-hmm. just this episode. So I, I James Gunn did an interview where he said, you know, in that moment when Chris decides to kill the butterflies and destroy the cow, he makes the worst possible choice for the best reasons. So for the first time, he puts his friends yeah. and his connections before this idea of peace and doing anything for peace, yeah. right? So I think it's really interesting that we have this character who's done the most abhorrent things, who is like the most gnarly war criminal sociopath, but wants to be better. And then you end the season knowing that while he's on that quest for a better life, maybe some kind of absolution or just caring about people for the first time, he's going to be haunted by this kind of dark passenger dad who is going to be a counterpoint to that. And I think that those intertwining kind of aspects of Chris are going to be like the major point and kind of conflict of season two as he tries to do better. Yeah, Gunn's told Deadline about season two of Peacemaker. I can't say anything. It is connected to this universe. I don't think it'll be the same genre as Peacemaker. It won't be as much comedy as Peacemaker, Mm. but it will be in the same universe. I think all of that suggests that they probably will lean into that kind of fractured psyche, yeah. the, the the white supremacist voice that Chris is trying to escape is going to continue to be a, a force in his life. We should add that uh, <laughs> that over the uh, the Green Arrow tweet, Stephen Amell uh, shot back on Twitter. He said of that moment, haven't seen it of the show, haven't seen it too busy showing Cena what professional wrestling should actually look like on TV. I think this was actually a joke. I don't think he's like actually mad. I don't know. I don't know. Like, it's like I think it's like it's 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 uh it's kayfabe, right? It's it's wrestling. Yeah, it's, kayfabe. It's, it's it's you do the you do the little beef. So something okay. So something I want to talk about, right? So we talked. Yeah. You talked about the connection between like this show delving into mental health and 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 PTSD, and I wouldn't necessarily say that this is like that's like the central thread, but I would say it's something that James. Gunn is clearly really interested in. I mean, to Mm -hmm. to me, that's one of the most powerful things about Suicide Squad is looking at how all these people have been shaped by the violence that they had to do. You know, Idris Elba, his character has a lot of that rat catcher. Hers is is an opposite version. So James Gunn obviously cares about this. And like you said, it preempts the version that we're going to see of that in Moon Knight. We already saw it in Legion, the Fox show kind of loosely based on the X-Men character. Yeah. Charles Xavier's Charles Xavier's son. And, and with his big uh, hair. unloved 
and ignored some. Yeah, and that definitely, it was very gray area of what that what the exploration was and what the character was saying. But there's something else that James Gunn did in this show, that in watching the finale and preparing for this, James Gunn has preempted something else that Marvel is about to do. And I bet that everyone at Disney is absolutely pissed because do you know what this show is? And I'm going to blow your mind Tell if me. you haven't already thought of this. No, go, go, go. It's a secret invasion show. I know. The entire show is secret yeah. invasion. I knew it, it is about yeah. a world and a society that looks like our own that has been taken over by aliens in all different high parts of the government, which in secret invasion is the scrolls. And it is about how they had to leave their planet because of kind of cosmic immigration, planetary yeah. destruction, all the th- same things as the butterflies in this show. And not only that, the, the reason that I know that James Gunn is either the world's most hilarious troll, and I respect <laughs> it, or he is very subconsciously, I know that he is subconsciously influenced by every kind of comic. Because the Suicide yeah. Squad, there is an argument that that isn't, every character in that is analogous to a character in the Avengers. So he right. is obviously influenced. But the thing that makes me think this is specific is that there is a very specific part of secret invasion law that ties into the scrolls, which is the idea that in the very first appearance of the scrolls, some of them get stuck as cows. Right. And yes. in the scroll kill crew comic, which I feel like James yes. Gunn's probably a huge fan of, there is a storyline about the cows, alien meat becoming a part of the the kind of the wider American food stuff. Yeah. This whole thing, it's just secret invasion. And I bet Disney is like so mad that, J- that James Calling Gunn- it the cow <laughs> yeah. is amazing. Thank you for explaining it. Here's my counterpoint. Are there probably people that are annoyed? I think probably so. On the other hand, DC and Marvel, these two companies have been so interlinked. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, they are competitors, but they are constantly... I mean, constantly ripping off each other, taking each other's characters and putting their own spins on it, taking their each other's storylines and putting their own spins on it. They are doing this constantly, whether it's you go back to, you know, uh, Thanos and Darkseid. Of course. You get, you know, the like, classic. The classic. Like you could go to Moon Knight and Batman. Like there's a million of these. And so I think viewing it from that perspective – And of course, like whether it's, you know, George Perez or Brian Michael Bendis, there's been any number of creators who have gone between both companies and have Mm -hmm. had wonderful, happy, creative careers at both companies and have no problem whatsoever going from DC to Marvel, DC to Marvel and back. So I think viewed it from this perspective, this is like another one of those things. Yeah. Like where, you know, where where a, a creator has moved from one side of the street to the other and has included some sly reference as like how many Superman jokes are in Marvel yeah, comics? Exactly. How many Captain America jokes are in DC comics? It happens all the time. Yeah. Also, it's so like I love that angle, actually, because you know what else? It's, a, it's that conversation we're always talking about. And Marvel and DC are in conversation with each other, right? In a Eternals, yeah. they mentioned Batman and Superman for the first time. Right. Like this conversation is becoming more of a two-way street. And I actually really kind of love your angle on it too, because the imaginary, does somebody at corporate Disney not like this? Perhaps. But the real truth is this once again actually does something truly brilliant that a lot of these stories rely on. Just like Marvel introducing the multiverse, people need to have an understanding and a cultural recognition of what that means. And DC's yeah. TV shows had been doing multiverse for 10 years. 
So people kind of had an idea, oh, something that exists in the DC animated universe can also exist on the CW, like that's a multiverse. So in a way, this actually just, because it's not going to be anything like Secret Invasion. This is James Gunn's own vision, but the, the, the analog of the story is there. And I think that in a way, like I love your perspective, because what this really does is it just gets people familiar with this kind of storytelling. It gets people familiar with these wider, broader ideas that can then be reimagined. Because like, yeah, it's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's not right. like this was some incredibly <laughs> unique, no one's saying like, right. oh it's no, the, he It's the it thing, you know? Like, it's yeah. the thing, exactly. It's the paranoia, who can we trust? It's They Live. You know, there's yeah, so many versions live. of this. And I kind of love that's so close to Secret Invasion, we've gotten to see James Gunn's take on this kind of classic sci-fi, but in this superhero trappings and with these kind of things that seem like nods like the cow, it really makes it fun to watch this kind of stuff. It is, is super fun. I really had a great time. Another question. So we we mentioned in a previous conversation, brief conversation we had about The Peacemaker, that for me, I think the thing that would define like how important Peacemaker mm-hmm. was, is was going to be like, how does it tie in, right? That's what it's all about now, is how does this tie into the broader universe? And with that uh, that cameo at the end of the, uh, the finale, we got our answer, right? The Justice League came. They came at the behest of Amanda Waller, whose daughter was, uh, you know, working with Peacemaker. So we know that this is all taking place in the universe. Notably, uh, Cyborg and Batman Bruce Wayne were not there. What do you think they were doing? What, like, because right. they could have done it, right? Like, they, I mean, they, you know, they have uh, Superman and and Wonder Woman there, but just like in yep. shadow, so you don't really see their faces. We got the full Moa Moa action with Aquaman. We got to see uh, Barry Allen full mm-hmm. face, and we know that like, the actor was there. But they clearly could have done like a Batman in yep. shadow, Cyborg in shadow, if they wanted to. Where do you think they are, and what are they doing? Yeah, I'm. I'm most intrigued by this, especially because of James's quote that you mentioned earlier, where he's like, "There are reasons for it, but I'm unsure if I can actually say what they are." That to me says it's some kind of corporate planning. But what I'm really interested in is like, so we see Momoa as Aquaman, who I love. That's like, I love Aquaman. I'm Aquaman stan. Big fan. Barry yeah. Allen, Ezra Miller, like. So this is that DCEU world, right? So I think right. to me, if I was gonna creatively guess i would say like it's a struggle to decide which batman would be there and in batman with superman he has a very archetypical shadow it's just a yeah. it's a flying guy even though i think his proportions yeah. were a bit off i think he's a bit chunkier yeah. but sure um but like batman people <laughs> it's can, an alex ross it's yeah, an alex, it's an ross, alex superman. ross superman <laughs> but like batman for example i feel like if he had been there and he would had the little short ears you'd be like oh that's ben affleck batman but Robert Pattinson, Batman, do we know if he's in that same world? We don't. Like, is that going to still be that kind of Earth 2 thing that Warner Brothers had kind of mentioned? Like, so I think the problem is the bat suit is so iconic that by putting any Batman there, you like make a statement. <laughs> right. And, and I kind of, I, I, I can't even a silhouette. I kind of like the idea narratively that like Batman and Cyborg would be on a mission together, yeah. you know, doing, if we're talking narratively, like, I really love that idea that that could kind of be their explanation. Like they were doing something that was more important. You know, this is not the first alien invasion for that Justice League. Right, like, they've done that. They've the been doing this. The Mother Box is like a yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. You know? So you send your like, it's kind of cruel as well, but I love it because like I'm a big Aquaman fan and 
But the Flash and the Aquaman are not like the A-list DC heroes. So I kind of love, even though like this Superman and Wonder Woman, obviously that's part of the Trinity. But I kind of love that the ones we see are like the the (laughs) B-team. I like that too. When do you think we'll get Green Lantern back in the mix? Like the movie was bad, okay? Yeah, we know. But that's like a huge part of the OG, like the real like iconic Justice League lineup. It's the biggest question. So they're doing like a Green Lanterns show, right? Yeah. And and we know that the way that the DC stuff has been is you can have the show that exists alongside a movie version. I think whenever we get it, I don't think it will be Hal Jordan. I think it's probably mm. going to be John Stewart. John Stewart, yeah. Yeah, and I just feel like it has to be soon. That never fails to trip me up. That <laughs> that it's <laughs> that it's the name is John Stewart. I know. Both ways, yeah. Like when John Stewart first arrived on the scene, I was like, "Oh, it's Green Lantern." And then when <laughs> and then after a while, it flipped to where, "Oh, the comedian John Stewart." Yeah. And now both times they are just so like mashed together. Yeah, I think it's going to be something like that. I think we we potentially could see like a Jessica Cruz, like a newer, mm. more diverse kind of. I would love attitude wise like i mean i love yeah i want to see john stewart though especially a version of him where he's like you know the architect or something like something a bit more about the blueprints i think something that's really exciting about green lantern we rarely get to see them imagine anything other than like a giant fist or a gun so i would love to see the the reality of of the green lantern power and the power of will brought to life more visually but i would also like to see guy gardner green lantern like, mm. I just think he's got such a good attitude. And I, I believe that he might be uh, one of the leads of the Green Lanterns show, which makes me think that Jon Stewart as the movie Green Lantern would make the most sense. Question. Do you think that I find this extremely doubtful, but I'm just going to put it out there. Do you think that there's going to be some sort of the Batman, Matt Reeves is the Batman reason for Batman not being there? And now, originally, I I will say that we were absolutely convinced that there would be some sort of, like, Hawkeye tie-in to to Spider-Man, and it didn't happen. And that one seemed like a really easy one to do. So I just don't see this happening. But you got to put it out there because the, the Batman is coming out soon. It's possible. And the truth is, I think that the irony is, while there might not be a direct narrative Easter egg... Though, which we kind of thought there would be with Hawkeye and Spider-Man. Yeah. What they did with Hawkeye and Spider-Man is they let us like put it together. Like, oh, well, Spider-Man, you know, he was probably there on this day because the tree was still standing in Rockefeller Center. So I think like when we see the Batman, we'll probably be like, oh, well, narratively, he probably couldn't have been there. He was busy. <laughs> but also <laughs> I think corporately, that's not a word. Yeah. But, you know, I think in a corporate sense, I actually think that is the spot on thing. I think DC is about to commit to a brand new iteration of Batman that we are unsure of how connected it will be or how standalone it will be. And um, I think that in that way, to have this episode coming out like a couple of weeks before Batman, having Batman in any way is a statement, you know? Yeah. Let's run down some some of the upcoming DCEU projects because it's just fun. So the Batman, of course, March 4th. DC League of Super Pets. May 20th. You mentioned before that, you know, Marvel is probably mad that uh, oh, <laughs> James Gunn Pet reference. Avengers. Secret Avengers. Pet Avengers. How did they do this? Marvel has been beaten to the punch on Pet Avengers by DC's League of Super Pets. Black Adam, which looks uh, very interesting, July 29th. Yeah. 
Then the long-awaited, mm-hmm. and I mean long-awaited, Flash movie, uh, November 4th, followed by Aquaman and Lost Kingdom. I'm super excited about the continuing Jason Momovers, Batgirl 2022, Sandman TV series, which is not going to be connected to anything. But I am it's, very it, yeah, glad. Yeah. Very, have- very excited that it's coming, but it is not going to it's be It's not going to be connected. connected. Say any of this. But I am very happy that we have reached the place as a pop culture. The Sandman era. The, the yes. Sandman era can happen. And also that people understand that Vertigo is owned by DC. This is technically yes. a DC Comics project. Those are conversations that 10 years ago people will be like, oh no, Vertigo, that's indie comics. That's creator owned. I mean, some right. Vertigo comics are, Sandman is not. But um, but yeah, I love that this is included in there. But alas, that is sadly not going to, we are not going to see death like popping up in Batgirl, though <laughs> I would love say, that. Absolutely not going to see that. <laughs> Sandman is really, you know, whenever you would see a graphic novel on the shelf of someone who doesn't read comics, at least when I was like in college and when I was a like, mm-hmm. younger person, it was one of three comics. It was Watchmen. Dark Knight Returns yep. and Sandman. Those were the three. So this is a big moment. This is a really, this is an iconic, iconic graphic novel, iconic comic series about to about to hit the screen. Okay, Harley Quinn season three, the extremely, if you haven't watched Harley Quinn season one and two, Whoa. it's so funny. Fix it. Fix it because it's so, so, so funny. Watch it. Season three coming 2022. Uh, Titans season four. I haven't watched any Titans, but I need to watch it. I, I, Titans, Teen Titans is like, I actually think theoretically my first comic book mm-hmm. because we got a say no to drugs comic like wow. in elementary school and it was the Teen Titans. No way. Dude, That I will say Titans never saw it going to get, I never would have guessed it was going to get four seasons. I remember being at San Diego Comic-Con when the fuck Batman trailer dropped and everyone <laughs> yeah. was like, what? heck but when i first saw that pilot i was like this should be a hbo max show it looks like hbo max there's a game of thrones reference and lo and behold i mean uh, i at the time i said hbo because i didn't know hbo yeah. max would exist but i feel like it has found its place on that i love any teen team and while we do not have an Same. xavier's school for gifted youngsters show i continue to watch titans it is also good as a kind of potted history of famous batman Bat family kind of stories in a way that like X-Men 92, one of the reasons I think people love it so much is you get to see all these different stories, you know, Phoenix Saga, the Days of Future Past. It's like an anthology series of like the greatest hits of the X-Men. And Titans, each season has elements of that, specifically the last season, which is very heavily based on uh, Death in the Family, Jason Todd stuff. So Mm. I think... If you like Batman and you and you want to explore it and you don't mind it being a little bit edgy, definitely worth a try. Doom Patrol season four. There's another series that I did not think would get four mm-hmm. season six. Uh, Pennyworth season three in 2022. Young Justice. Yep. Season four, the Arrowverse TV series, which is uh, I've always liked Green Arrow. Let me just put it out there. I like Green Arrow. He's, he cares about social justice. He puts his money where his mouth is. And I've always been a fan of the comics Green Arrow. Shazam, Fury of the Gods, June yes. 2nd, 2023. Blue Beetle, which is going to be super fun for the fans of Blue Beetle. And then Peacemaker season two, likely uh, 2023. Oh, of course. And then Wonder Woman three, which is Somewhere in development, who knows where. Lots of stuff to think about. How in the future do you think Peacemaker could possibly tie back to Justice? We now have seen Justice League in a Peacemaker a show. I wonder if we get any mentions in upcoming DCEU mm-hmm. movies of like whether it's Doom Patrol, Titans, whatever, 
just like a, a mention like, oh, there's this team working over here. Oh, there's that guy with the bow and arrow over at Star City. I think that I've just had a brainwave inspired by our convo. I think that this may be the HBO Max superhero shows and movies as we are about to see them. Batgirl, you mentioned, uh, Blue yeah. Beetle, HBO... James Gunn has talked about the possibility of potential other Suicide Squad spin-off shows, which I would love and seems very likely in the context of how popular the show was. So I think that maybe it's less about whether or not we will see any movies that reference these shows and more about how these shows will build in elements of what we knew as the DCEU. So Mm. like, will this be the place where the Jared Leto Joker exists? Will this be the place where these Justice League Zack Snyder characters continue to be the main line of superheroes because Zack Snyder's Justice League was a HBO Max original. This show is a HBO Max original. Maybe they're building some kind of HBO Max televisual DC universe that is going to continue that line on while they continue this kind of more auteur-driven, visionary, different kind of film universes. And obviously, we know Aquaman is still going to have a movie. So that's somewhere I could imagine him making like a funny joke about Peacemaker or John Cena, kind of on the meta-meta level, you know? So I could see it, but I I actually think we might be seeing a a world where the DCEU and the kind of Snyderverse era stuff continues more in these TV shows than necessarily... Mm anywhere also that would that would fit in with um there were kind of rumors around the idea that the batgirl movie would connect to the flash movie yeah you know so i think maybe that era and those two heroes specifically aquaman and the flash might be that world connected between the movies and tv that we were waiting for let's leave this conversation with this uh one of the theories uh, about season two would be that bane Iconic Batman villain Bane would appear in season two of the Peacemaker. Peacemaker. But James Gunn shot that down brutally saying, quote, don't you know by now to make really sure of this stuff before posting? This is bullshit. No one knows what's coming but me and even I don't fully know. So there you have it. No Bane in season two of the Peacemaker. Up next, let's go to the hive mind. Welcome to the hive mind, where we dive deep into a topic with the help of a guest. This week, X-Ray Vision is pleased to welcome Chuck Woody Iwuji, a.k.a. Clemson Mern, a.k.a. Ichnoblock from Peacemaker. Chuck Woody, thank you for joining us so much. Congratulations on uh, Peacemaker Season 1. Super fun show. How did you get involved in it? What brought you to uh, playing Mern? Rest in peace, Mern. Uh, I'll ask you later if uh, if that's to stay, but let's see. What brought you to this, this project? Well, um, it was your standard wake up in the morning, getting on with your day, and then an email comes from your agent and... It was soon after COVID, you know, the first round of COVID had ended. So like things were beginning to open up and it was one of the first things that came my way. And it was like three pages uh, of, you know, very secretive, you know, not giving anything away, but it was a James Gunn project and all that stuff. And I, I actually remember reading it. I've told this story a hundred times. It's like, I, and I just said to my wife, why am I wasting my time? They, they're going to cast, you know, Lance Reddick. You know what I mean? He's perfect for this. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I would cast him. You know, but then I read the material and um, it was so funny. 
I mean, it was, I think the yeah. scene I got was the first scene where he comes in and meets Peacemaker in his trailer, you know, in episode one. And I'm reading that and I said to my wife, this is so hilarious. You know what? Let's just tape it. I'm not going to get it, but I owe it to this material to give it a go. And we did it. We did one take actually and sent it out. And as it happens, as I've heard, over, is that James saw it and was like, who the hell is this guy? I want him. And that's sort of like how it happened, you know. As, as a fan of Anglophile television and movies, mm. the thing I love about, you know, watching stuff on uh, on BBC is just how the range that actors who come up through the UK kind of like acting tree, the, the range mm. that you all display, you've done everything from Shakespeare to John Wick, uh, now Peacemaker. <laughs> how does how does that affect the way you approach a role, the way you approach Mern, uh, having this intense training? I mean, you've played you've played Othello on stage, <laughs> my friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, honestly, it's all I know. You know, I, I don't know how to like compare it to someone who doesn't have you know the same background as I do. My whole my whole world of acting has been about building characters from the ground up. You know, from what's on the page in front of you. You talked about my classical background. Yeah, when you're doing Shakespeare or Chekhov or Ibsen and stuff, it's it's on the page. You know, you're you're led the writers, great writers, and I I think James is a phenomenal writer because the really good writers are very good at directing the actors with what they say, how they say stuff. So I look for clues on the page and I just don't know how else to approach the work than the way I, I would approach. I approached Hamlet, I approached Othello and I approached Mern. Is there's, there's the stuff in front of me. You learn the lines, you get the clues from the writer, what you feel, your instincts tell you he wants. And then you, you, you the whole process is it getting deeper and it's settling into you, settling and settling. And your imagination goes wild. You, you dream on it. You wake up, you run the lines. I always believe I, 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 the first thing I do is learn the lines because those are where all my clues are in the language. So going back to what you say about the BBC, yeah, it's, we're very lucky in certainly the British system and a lot of European systems is that when you leave drama school, that's just the beginning. You know, you don't assume you're an actor after drama school, but we have the luxury of things like where I came up, the Royal Shakespeare Company, the National Theatre, Bristol, Old Vic, all these places where you can be an apprentice. So you can spend literally 10 years learning, mm. growing, growing in that confidence of doing, 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 doing tiny roles and the roles grow and stuff. So we have a whole culture of just being given time and space to grow, you know, and I feel very lucky about that because... It, it builds a confidence in you. Work begets work and, and, and experience grows doing all these sort of shows. There were seasons I would have about 20 roles in my head in a season, you know, and, and each one has to be distinct, you know. So we're, we're steeped in the culture of characterization and yeah. building characters and letting it go and going on to the next thing and stuff, you know. Yeah. Now, speaking of that, when did you find out that Mern was a butterfly and did that in any way, this is going to sound like a nerdy question, but these are the things I think about. Did that in any way affect your performance? Were you thinking, okay, I'm uh, Ichno Block inside <laughs> I don't this even know his name. of meat and that's the character that I'm playing? Not, you know, like, yeah. did, did it affect the way you, you approached the role at all? No, no. I, I knew about Mun right from the start. Mm. It was part of what really attracted me to the role and made it very juicy. Peter Safran and James called me and told me about this arc that he has. But in all fairness, Jason, I don't believe in 
playing an arc. In mm. life, we don't know what's coming next. We don't know what's next. Yeah. We just play moment to moment in life. And as an actor, I don't believe believe in drip feeding the audience or condescending actually the audience by doing that. I, I genuinely believe in this is what the scene is saying. James has written it in a certain way where we have a reveal. So why uh, spoil the surprise, as it were? So um, I'm always interested in playing moment to moment and letting the arc take care of itself. I, I really feel if there were any clues about who Mern was, it was in the writing. And I certainly wasn't going to let it be in my performance. Mm. Because if you're a good actor, as in if Mern as a butterfly is a good actor as Mern, <laughs> right. he would hide it. He wouldn't be saying, hey, yeah. wink, wink. Am I a butterfly or not? You know, that, that just isn't real for me. I, I, I wanted the audience to have a genuine surprise and I wanted to let myself have that surprise when it happened, you know, also. It was a wonderful surprise. <laughs> in the blooper reels, which are wonderful, there's a moment in which John Cena gets you to, uh, gets you to break and says something like, uh, Operation Chuck was a success. As, yeah. a, as an actor who's come up through the stage and, uh, and you've spoken wonderfully how you take your cues from the written page. How do you approach improvisation, these moments of improvisation when stuff like that happens uh, on the set? Oh, it terrifies the hell out of me. I, there's nothing that scares me more than a director saying, okay, improvise something. <laughs> James has a habit right now. We're shooting uh, Guardians and we'll do a few takes of something. I say, okay, we got it, Chuck. Now do whatever you want. And I'm like, ah! <laughs> you know, like, do something different. Do whatever you want. I'm like, what? Um, yeah, no, I, I, some actors love it. Some actors are natural at it. I don't love improvising. I really like, to, <laughs> I really like to know what I'm doing and be given it. But in that group, in that setting, I did improvise. We all did. And James encourages it. And it's such a safe atmosphere to do it in and such a fun atmosphere that you're never really going to fall flat on your face. Mm. It's always just going to, some things are going to work better than others, but you're never going to be, you're not going to fall flat on your face because it's encouraged. And James likes to let the camera run on and on. But that said, I was the straight man that Mern is, is very reflective of who I was amongst that cast because they're naturals. I mean, John can improvise from now yeah. till eternity. Steve Agee, stand up. I mean, just hilarious Danielle. You know, I mean, it's so natural to them. I, I had to play catch up and often, I'd be the kid at the back of the class that reluctantly put up my hand to improvise. I let the experts get on with it. You know, <laughs> uh, we must talk about the opening sequence. Uh, mm. How long did it take to uh, to get your part down? Uh, and at what point did you learn that you would be learning some choreography for the opening credit sequence? <laughs> uh, well, after we started filming, so there was no backing out. Uh, it was. Uh, it was, a, it was like a month in or something. Someone just mentioned, yeah, and so on this day, we're shooting the dance sequence. I was like, what? What, <laughs> what dance sequence? And so that's how we, we found out. And then we only had, uh, with the wonderful Carissa, I think I had three rehearsals with her. And so a lot of the work you had to do at home on your own and just drill it and drill it and drill it. So I think from, I want to say we had maybe about five or six weeks between the first rehearsal and when we actually did it. And we worked with her two or three times and then we were there. It was time to shoot it. So I drove my wife crazy practicing at home. I mean, she was just like, what are you doing? I was like, I have to get this down. I have to get this down because I don't want to look like a right idiot. So, yeah. <laughs> I've never fast forwarded. Uh, it, it brings me joy every single time mm. I watch the show. Even when I watch episodes, again, you know, for research purposes, I always watch it. Yeah. And the thing that... that <laughs> absolutely kills me is the the complete deadness of everybody's face how <laughs> was that i mean i understand that you are concentrating on the steps but was that difficult to just 
not laugh, not smirk, not anything while you're doing these? There's a funny story. I don't know if Danielle has has been on your show or told you about it, but on the day we were filming, Danielle hadn't got the memo about the straight face. And when she came to do her thing, and she's such a great mover. She was in it, man. She was Beyonce in the shit out of it. And and, and James was like, Danielle, <laughs> none, of, none of that. Um, no, um, it was. It was hard. Of course, you're looking around, looking at that and people dancing in front of you and all this. It's hard not to want to just grin. Also, the music is just so damn good because of playing it full blast, the light. It was like being on an MTV music you know, soundstage, you know, in the old days of those music videos. And it was exciting. So, yes, it was a challenge not to get carried away. But, you know, it's like acting a role. The role we were given that day, the direction from the director was like straight face. Let's get it done. And then there were lots of, as you'd see in the blooper reel and stuff. I don't know if there's one just for the dance. There's lots of breaking up right after, you know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Do you have a, any particular favorite moments from uh, from the season, whether they include Mern or not? I actually, um, it's funny. I mean, if you okay, if we break that down. My favorite episode is episode eight, although I'm not in it. I just think it was such an epic arrival of that team, you know, and it was just beautiful to see, especially with the cameos at the end. Yeah. So that was my favorite episode. Favorite, my f- favorite moment is slightly selfish because it was on the day we were filming the dance sequence and you're already having the time of your life filming this dance sequence, you know. But in the middle of shooting that dance sequence, James came up to me and said, can I have a word with you? And I was like, uh, you know, and I joked, is this when you tell me you actually were looking to hire Chiwetel Ejiofo and got our names mixed up? Uh, and he says, no, 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 it's not. It's not. Actually, it's, it's quite the opposite. I, I, I want you to play X in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 3. So it was on that day we were filming it, he told me that. And for me, as a fan of comics, as a fan of James Gunn, as an as an actor who's like sort of making my way more and more into film and TV, for that day to be already doing filmmaking and then be to asked to go on to this incredible next project was it's selfishly my favorite moment of the whole thing in, in what was a lot of amazing moments uh, in Vancouver, you know? I mean, that's truly wonderful. I mean, you know acting, any kind of creative life, you can't help but appreciate it when you start to get work. Mm. What drew you to acting um, as a young person? What was it? Well, as a very young person in, in Nigeria, I grew up in, in Lagos, Nigeria. I, I I didn't have a choice. We did school plays and they put you in a play and you did it. And I happened to be good at it and I did a lot of plays. So, but, you know, it's sort of what you did at school. Mm. And then... Um, but I do remember in, in Nigeria as a kid, I was fascinated by film and TV. Fascinated. I just, and I would memorize movies, whole films, where I could quote the people talking. I would just, that was my, my imagination games weren't um, imaginary friends popping out of a, my imagination games were movies and, and TV shows I'd seen reenacting them, literally playing different roles from them on a given day. So I was always drawn to it. So but I never conscious, I didn't know what I wanted to be. It wasn't until years later when I was trying to uh, convince my dad. My dad wanted me to go to Oxbridge, Oxford or Cambridge. And I knew that if I did that, I would have to make a decision on my career straight away, very early on. And I wasn't ready to, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I said, if I go to America, at least I have a couple of years in the liberal arts system to like, mess around with different things and decide what I want to be. Somewhere in the back of my mind was probably the knowledge that if I'm ever going to act, I have to start there. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Maybe. 
but I hadn't codified it. And then I, so my dad made a bet with me. He said, okay, fine. If you want to go to America, the only way you'll go to America is if you get into an Ivy League, then I'll let you go. It was the most expensive bet of his life because I got into Yale. You know, <laughs> my dad's first. And only <laughs> so I got into Yale. I did economics there, but while I was there, I started doing drama. And the head of the undergraduate program, James DePaul, who to this day I'm very grateful for, saw me doing a, a production and this is where it's weird. I'm sorry I'm taking a long time oh, to explain no, it, but this, this is, is where wonderful. life this is where life meets art. When I was ten, we were living in Ethiopia. My my parents uh worked for the United Nations and we were in Addis Ababa and we didn't have much t- the TV was aw- awful, you know. So we had this black market amongst the expats and diplomats and stuff of VHS videos. We would exchange them, pass them around. And one day a a, a copy of Beckett. Uh, it's a movie from 1964, I believe, with Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole, The Murder in the Cathedral, uh, written by Jean Anouy. And um, as a 10-year-old, I'm watching this thing set in like the 14th century, and I, I can't get over how good these guys are. Like, I, I'm watching Richard and just going, that's what I want to be. But then I forgot about it. That happened when I was 10. Fast forward to Yale, and I'm 20, and I finally decide I want to start acting and doing it more. And one of the first posters I see, my girlfriend, I, I, I'm walking with my girlfriend at the time, and she, she goes, oh, look at that poster. My friend's directing that. And I look at it, and it's Beckett. It's, that, it's the play of that movie. And of course, I know it. I know both roles, I whatever. I went into it, and I got the role of Beckett. The head of undergraduate drama saw the play because he had to go grade it, saw me play Beckett, and offered me a full scholarship to drama school. And that's how my acting started, because of this movie I'd seen when I was 10 in Ethiopia that I was so drawn to. I watched it over and over again. So that's how the acting thing happened because when I actually started acting as an adult, because there was a whole period when I was in high school, I didn't act, I did sports. Back then you either did sports or you did arts. You know, I did sport. But when I came back to it, I knew for a fact this is exactly what I have to do, you know, and that's sort of how that drama school and on was what propelled me onwards, you know. I still got my degree in economics, so my dad was very proud of me. <laughs> and and at, what point, <laughs> at what point did he realize that this was a, your acting was more than a calling, it was legitimately a pathway, something that you could do legitimately for work? When did your parents realize that it was that it could happen? My parents were amazing. I, I, I got offered this uh, scholarship to drama school second semester junior year. I didn't tell them till first semester senior year because I was like, how do I tell my parents I want to go to drama school? But I finally wrote them a letter. And to this day, I have the letter they wrote back that was so beautiful. It was them saying, OK, we're surprised at this. We never saw it coming. But our role as your parents was to give you the best possible opportunities and education. You've done that. You're at Yale. You're doing this. Now go live your life as you want to live it after that. And if this is what you choose, we support you and thank God for that. Because so it wasn't that they thought, oh, he can make a living. They supported me from the start that this is the first time since they've known me as a kid. One minute I wanted to be a firefighter, the next a vet, the next a wrestler, the next a whatever. Like that. this is the first time that I had something that I was like, it's not that just because I can do it, but this is what I want to do. And they supported me from the start. The believing that I can support myself with it, they just believed it would come. You know what I mean? Uh, there was no point that they thought, oh, he's safe now. They knew it was a struggle. They knew it was hard. They helped when they can. Thank God for their support. I, I owe so much to them. I got my first apartment in London 
with their help. Do you know what I mean? After I finally got my first big job and they helped pay for part of the deposit, they were just there for me the whole time. But I think it was, it was, it's only, my mom passed away, you know, in 2009, sadly. And I would say it's, it's, I wish she could see this stage of it. Mm. You know, she saw the stage with the RSC and the national, she knew I could do it and she could see things growing. I just really wish she could see this stage where she could literally go to the movies and, and, and watch me. Do you know what I mean? But I'm sure she's watching from up top I'm somewhere. Sure my dad's is. still around. My dad's still around loving everything. He became overnight a movie buff. <laughs> from never remembering my dad ever watching a movie to the end without falling asleep. Overnight, when I said I wanted to be an actor, suddenly my dad's calling me, asking me about James Cagney, Humphrey <laughs> Bogart. Have I seen this film? Casablanca is his favorite movie. He just became a film buff and watches everything. It's crazy, you know? <laughs> Uh, I must ask you, season two of The Peacemaker has been confirmed. Um, yeah. We hope to see some Mern flashbacks or some kind of comic booky rejuvenation, but, uh, whatever the case. <laughs> Where are you in that process? And is there anything at all that you can tell us? And if not, that is also fine. I have no idea. It's not that I'm being no, uh, secretive. Yeah. I genuinely don't know what's going on in the mind of James Gunn. Um, uh, it could go, that series could go anywhere. And you're right. We're in the world of superheroes and stuff. Anything can happen. But I, I genuinely, I'm not, I'm not being uh, clever or anything. I genuinely have no idea. Right now, I'm, I'm in the world of James Gunn on the other side of the pond. That's you know? right. <laughs> not in that one. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, we look forward to that. Uh, we look forward yeah. to Guardians 3. Uh, Chuck, thank you so much for joining us. Really delightful conversation. Such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Chuck Weedy for joining us. Up next, Nerd Out. In this week's Nerd Out, our recurring segment where you tell us what you love and why, James pitches us on the Amazon Prime series The Legend of Vox Machina, adapted from the first campaign of the popular Twitch stream Critical Role. Hi, guys. My name is James Carson, and I am here to tell you why you need to be watching The Legend of Vox Machina. Vox Machina is an animated series for adults, for those listeners with children, emphasis on for adults, based on the Dungeons & Dragons web series Critical Role. Led by Dungeon Master Matthew Mercer and a cast of incredible voice actors, Critical Role is credited with being one of the things that made D&D quote-unquote cool again, and is certainly one of the reasons why I've fallen down the rabbit hole and now have a dedicated group I play with every Tuesday. I need to take a moment to shout out my DM, Gary, and our party members, Alyssa, Maddie, Kyle, Christian, Julie, Ulysses, Libby, and Charlotte, for making a very difficult time in all of our lives brighter and helping each other get into this wonderful hobby. After the completion of Critical Role's first campaign, which stars the titular Vox Machina Adventuring Party and their adorable bear trinket, the company set up a Kickstarter for a single animated special that ballooned into one of the largest crowdfunding projects of all time and a preliminary two-season partnership with Amazon Prime Video. Mercer, along with players and animation veterans Sam Regal and Travis Willingham, were given the opportunity to bring their world to life on a scale they could not have imagined. The result was this, The Legend of Vox Machina, a powerful, creative, and surprisingly raunchy retelling of a beloved story that hits every single mark fans of the series could have hoped for. The first episode opens with the grisly deaths of a different adventuring party hired to defeat a great evil in the realm of Tal'Dori. Meanwhile, the down-on-their-luck Vox Machina find themselves in a brutally animated tavern brawl, except for their bard, Scanlan Shorthalt, who is in bed with the innkeeper's daughter, that results in them being thrown out on the streets and forced to take the dead party's contract as Sovereign Uriel's last-ditch effort to save his kingdom. 
While the adult bits are turned up to 11, the series still manages to create a touching and compelling story, with each member of the party beginning their own personal journey in this first season, and the creators do an incredible job of showing what it really means to be in a D&D party. Not only are your friends' characters your lifelines within the game, but it's such a comforting thought, especially in times like this, to know that there are people who you can rely on to have your back week after week while you create your story together. The show also does a fascinating job of weaving standard D&D game situations into the story without being too obvious about it, whether it be the ranger of Exalia's primeval awareness, the druid Keyleth using her wild shape to transform into animals, Grog the barbarian entering a frenzied rage, or the cleric Pike running out of spell slots and being unable to heal an ally at a crucial moment. For all its adult humor, the show has so much heart and is not afraid to put its characters in vulnerable positions to serve its beautiful narrative. You can find hundreds of hours of Critical Role's first two completed campaigns on their YouTube channel, following the parties Vox Machina and The Mighty Nine, while episodes of their third campaign currently air every Thursday night on their Twitch channel. The Legend of Vox Machina is currently in its first season, with three episodes releasing every Friday on Prime Video, and season two is already in the pipeline. Thanks, James, for submitting. If you want to be featured, send your nerd out pitch to x-ray at crooked.com. Instructions in the show notes. FYI, we'll be diving into Vox Machina and other video game adaptions, including Arcane and Uncharted in an upcoming episode. So go check those out when they come out. Up next, the end game. We are in the end game now. And for today's game, we're going to be picking who our favorite villain turned hero is. Favorite villain turned hero in any kind of story, sci-fi, fantasy, comic book story, whatever the case may be. I will go first. There's so many. I mean, Jamie Lannister from A Song of Ice and Fire slash Game of Thrones, although like mm-hmm. in the, obviously in the books has not fully had the chance to turn into a hero as of yet, but in the in the show – had what I think is one of the most miraculous turnarounds from yeah. guy who pushes a child out of a window to guy who you're like, I want him to hook up with uh, Brienne of Tarth, <laughs> which is like an amazing arc. Ultimate shit. Many, many other examples. But I'm going to pick – and then, of course, like you could say Darth Vader even mm-hmm. though like he kind of goes opposite. But I'm going to go – I'm going to go Magneto. I knew it. I think Magneto – yeah, I had to do it because Magneto – for the first 20 years of his existence, did some of the worst shit (laughs) that anybody could ever do. Like trying to destroy the world multiple times, like hijacking nuclear missiles and trying to blow them up and turn either people into mutants or exterminate the human race and let the, and let the mutants rise above them. He did a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of bad shit. But round about the eighties, suddenly Mm -hmm. he started coming around, decided that, you know what, I've done a lot of bad stuff and I want to take responsibility for it. He went on trial at the at the fucking UN. And ever since then, which I want to say is like X-Men about 200, the trial of Magneto, he has been like basically a good guy. He's been a good guy for yeah. like 30 years now, right? A Holocaust survivor. Notably, I think that one detail forever shifted the way we think about Magneto. And so I am going to say Magneto. Yeah, I think that's like really the obvious classic choice. It's like, because it's really interesting as well, because even though certain places have repositioned him, like the famous 8 million copy selling X-Men number one in the 90s, you know, Jim Lee, Chris Claremont, like they want to reposition him as the villain, but it doesn't stick because we know the trauma. We know the journey of of what has come. Um, 
Okay, I'm going to go for... I, I was going to also pick Magneto because it's like such a classic yeah. uh, choice. But I'm going to go for another X-Men character, which is like, I'm going to go for Rogue. Because we forget. Yes. We forget. Like, like early on, like she was like, you know, Mystique. In the Brotherhood, Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Raised by Mystique in the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. She is, you know, uh, contesting and fighting with Carol Danvers, which ends up changing her powers. And she just has this wonderful arc. And I, I love that in her case, it's this choice of nature versus nurture. And and actually, Destiny and Mystique, who raised her, were not bad people. They were just in a tough situation. And it's kind of that. It's a continuation of the Magneto thing, which is like, who is really the villain and who is really the hero in these kind mm. of rebellion situations. And and I like that as a young person, she gets to choose her own journey and become a hero. You know, and also I she love- has one of the best character designs of all time. I I could not agree more. One of the characters when I was reading comics as a kid and really in love with the X-Men that I most connected with was Rogue because uh-huh. this idea, she was like amongst the loners who the, you know, the mutants are outcasts, they're loners amongst the superhero community and the and the regular human community at large. But even amongst these outcasts, she was like the ultimate outcast. She was uh-huh. daughter of Mystique, former Brotherhood of Evil Mutants took Carol Danvers' powers, so people didn't really trust her. And she couldn't even, like, hold hands with it. She couldn't touch anyone. Mm -hmm. She was physically isolated from people, which, you know, I've said this before, and it's an embarrassing thing about me, but I was extremely invested in the the, uh, romance between Gambit (laughs) and Rogue. And a lot of that was because of this dynamic. Like, they were in love. She couldn't touch him. They Mm -hmm. They couldn't even kiss so that's a great pick. Love Rogue. Love, love, love. With love us Rogue. too, it always comes back to the X-Men. We can be it talking always. about anything, but it's just always <laughs> the X-Men. <laughs> well, that's it for the Endgame. Let us know your thoughts and use hashtag XRV Endgame to give us your pick. A big thank you to Chuck Woody Wooji and of course Rosie Knight for joining us on X-Ray Vision. Rosie, plugs, plugs, plugs. Where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram, uh, Rosie Marks. You can find me on Letterboxd, the same name, where I'm putting out all my bad films that I watch and some good films, <laughs> but lots of bad films. Um, yeah, that's. I'm going to be writing a ton about the Batman. I think it, it's just been announced yeah. that Nerdist is going to have like a big Batman-themed week where we're going to be writing about all kinds of stuff. And I've got a bunch of out, pieces folks. there. Also, just like, I love how much everyone here loves comics. So I read this brilliant comic from this wonderful press that I love called Black Josie Press, which is, uh, it's like a collection of erotic uh, indie comics by this wonderful cartoonist called Trinidad Escobar. It's called Arrive in My Hands. So that's kind of like my personal plug because that comic has just brought me so much joy. And yeah, just appreciate everyone being here. And obviously here, you can always hear us here talking about the X-Men and other stuff. (laughs) If you want to learn more about what we explore in each week's episode, check out our listener's guide to all things X-Ray Vision in the show notes or on our website. Catch the next episode on March 4th. And again, send your nerd out submissions to x-ray at crooked.com. And don't forget... Rate and review us. Give us those five-star ratings wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much. We love it. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is 
produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. It is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Caroline Reston and Carlton Gillespie are our consulting producers. And our editing and sound design is by Facilis Fotopoulos. Thank you to Brian Vasquez for our theme music. Goodbye.